welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Dr. Casey Grover here to welcome you back to another episode. I am still catching up after some summer travels and am glad to be able to get a few episodes put together here before the end of summer. Now, I am incredibly excited for this episode. It's been on my brain as an idea for a few months and I was finally able to set aside some time to record it. And even better, I have a guest with me on this episode. I am extremely pleased to welcome my colleague, Dr. Reb Close, to the pod for this episode. So with that, today's episode will be on the topic of naloxone, how to use it, how to teach your patients how to use it, how to get it out into your community, and more. With that, let's get started. Dr. Close, let's start with you telling us your story in medicine and what you do now. Hi, thank you so much for having me um, on the pod. Um, I'm really grateful to be here. My name is Reb Close and my first training um, was in emergency medicine. I trained at UCLA, go Bruins, and um, I worked at Community Hospital, the Monterey Peninsula, um, in the emergency department from 2003 um, until just a couple of years ago. Um, over my career in emergency medicine, I saw a lot of people struggling with Early in my career, it was as of yet undiagnosed substance use disorder, dependency and addiction. They would present to the ED with a multitude of complications um, from untreated substance use um, and mental health related issues. And over my career, I watched these patients suffer and I watched them have challenges in seeking and receiving care. And so later in my career, I really started focusing on that incredibly vulnerable population and then with my colleague, Dr. Casey Grover, we um, did our second board certification in addiction medicine. And a couple of years ago, I took myself out of the ER and I now do addiction treatment and advocacy full time. My three main areas of practice right now is I work in a, I call it a brick and mortar clinic. It's a, a typical clinic that we see patients with really complex addiction issues in our clinic, and I'm fortunate for the support we have there. We have a peer support specialist that we work side by side with. Um, my second practice is in uh, street medicine, where literally we pull up a van, um, set up a little uh, canopy for sun coverage, and we see patients right there on the street. And that is truly an incredibly rewarding experience to meet people where they are and to be ready for anything you can do to offer them, um, make that available to people that otherwise have really no access to care. And then my third practice that I'm working with right now is I help out in our jail um, clinic. And our jail is is run by a 
private entity, that's the jail medical, but I'm able to go in, we connect with the patients, we make plans for their discharge and aftercare, and then I get to follow up with them in the clinics, which is pretty incredible to see them get their lives back and get to work with them in that setting. So that's what I'm doing now and how I got there. So thank you for having me here today. Absolutely. So that brings us to our first question on the topic of naloxone. So you put in 20 years in the emergency department. When you were practicing in the emergency department, how did you use naloxone? Talk us through how to naloxone like a pro. So, you know, it's been really a lot of learning and quite, quite the journey, but I learned pretty early on in my career that too much naloxone could be a challenge. And in the ER, you have all these things at your disposal. You've got a pulse oximeter, you have nurses, you, you have extra hands and extra people and, and equipment to really nuance your naloxone use. So when someone, for example, would come in from an acute overdose and you didn't know if they were truly going to survive or not, that's not a time to deal with nuance. That's a time to get naloxone on board as quick as you can. We would do it literally through the genes, do injections and get naloxone in someone significant doses as quickly as possible because it was literally life and death. Now the alternative is in the ER when someone's say recovering from an overdose or you're not quite sure what's happening, you can give a little bit of naloxone. So I was a big fan of the 0.4 IV. And if someone, the respiratory rate was kind of slow, their oxygen seemed to be dipping, let's give them 0.4 of Narcan and just see. Typically for a patient that wouldn't wake them up to agitated acute withdrawal, instead it would help their breathing, it would support their respiratory status and therefore they were in a safer position. In the ER you have that option and I learned over the years how to really carefully walk that line of too much versus not enough. When you have the right resources it's it's a lot more nuanced and it can be. So just kind of summing that up, critical presentation, apneic, blue, just give it till they wake up, unresponsive. But if they're more just depressed or sleepy, it's maybe titrate yep. until they're not in severe withdrawal, but they're 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 breathing on their own. Yeah, they're maintaining their oxygenation. They're they have a reasonable respiratory effort. It it definitely is more nuanced, and you can afford to do that. You have the time for it if someone is not in that critical life life-threatening situation. So I, I, and disclosure, Dr. Close and I have worked in the same department for 10 years. I've heard you make this comment to some of our nurses, <laughs> let's not make a rhinoceros. Tell me what you mean when you're telling the, the nurses, let's not make a rhinoceros. Right. So I, I, one phrase that I've used very frequently in the ER is don't poke the bears. Like absolutely not. I don't want to take someone who is calm and comfortable, breathing well, oxygenating well, their heart rate is good. I don't want to turn that into an acute situation where someone is literally fighting the staff. They're they're in that fight or flight mode. What I didn't realize early in my career is that was precip- that was acute withdrawal. And later in my career, now I understand that's exactly what we were doing. And so those big doses of naloxone, we could easily turn someone from a very comfortable patient who's doing fine to someone who truly is like a wild rhinoceros in my emergency department. In severe withdrawal. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. The agitation and discomfort. When you step back and look at it from the patient perspective, that level of discomfort 
almost warrants that kind of a response from them. So once again, critical presentation, you know, you're worried the person might not survive, just push the zone. But again, if there is an opportunity to be a little bit more careful, you, you titrate. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's change the scenario a little bit. I know you work in a street clinic for patients with opioid use disorder, and you, as you mentioned, also have an outpatient clinic. Now that you're out of the emergency department, talk us through how you use naloxone in your practice now. Okay, so I mentioned in the ER, you have nurses and you have pulse oximeters and you have patients on monitors and you can give little tiny IV aliquots and make sure that you can go through the nuance of a comfortable situation for the, for the patient. On the street, I don't have that. Um, typically when I'm responding on the street, I grab a box of our nasal naloxone and that's what I have and I don't have a pulse oximeter. And, you know, fortunately with my medical training, I'm very comfortable, I'll check their pulse, I'll put my hand on their chest, I can easily see what's happening from basically, you know, my my eyes and hands on a patient. So it's different, my tools are fewer, and the extra information that I can, can really obtain in real time is just less. So in many ways, I feel like I am a family member or a first responder, who has a little bit of knowledge about how to check someone for their respiratory status and to check their heart rate. But really, I need 911 just as much as anybody else in that circumstance. So it's calling 911, realizing my limitations, and being able to act with what I have in the moment that I have it. Would you ever try to manage an overdose in your street clinic without sending someone to the hospital? Well, I don't get the choice of whether or not they go to the hospital. I get the choice of whether they get evaluated by EMS. And it is my standard of care is to contact EMS for a full assessment. They can do that pulse oximeter. They can put them on a monitor. They can talk with the patient. This isn't a game that I play by myself. Okay. Yep. I was going to say, so for every one of these out of the emergency department, you're calling 911. I mean, you and I both know who knows what they overdosed totally. on, right? Was it methadone? Was it isotinidazine? We have no idea what yeah. they overdosed on or if that's really what's happening. Like you need 911 in that situation, just like anybody else. And this is a big part of, of what I teach in the community. You got to have that help. So kind of a little bit of a take home here. Any overdose outside of the emergency department or inpatient setting, 911, give naloxone if you've got it. And then we most likely they're going to get transported to the hospital unless for some reason EMS decides they don't need to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. All right. So we've talked about using naloxone as a healthcare provider. What's the best way to get naloxone in the hands of our patients who are the highest risk of having an overdose? Normalize. We need to make this like a fire extinguisher, a seat belt. I mean, truly, I don't believe I'm about to burn my house down, but frankly, it could happen. So you have to have a fire extinguisher. You've got to be ready for an emergency situation. And that's really what I talk about when I'm trying to help the community understand why we want to get naloxone basically anywhere we possibly can. It's you don't know when something bad's going to happen, but if you're not able to handle it, unfortunately, these are fatalities that, that result from us not having naloxone or not having... Um, not being able to respond to an emergency situation. So when I want it in the hands of my patients and their family members, I hand it to them. You know, this morning I was checking on one of my patients and I literally handed his dad five boxes of Narcan. Do you, do you not prescribe it or do you, what, what makes you give it to them as opposed to giving them a prescription? So one of my dear friends who is also our lead pharmacist for our regional coalition she taught me that about 10% or less 
of the naloxone prescriptions that come through the pharmacy actually get picked up. So people will pick up their other medications, they will pick up, you know, anything else that they want at the pharmacy, but they will leave the Narcan. And is that because of stigma? Is that because of cost? It is for some patients, but even when it's covered by their insurance and it is free of charge, people will decline. I don't know all of the reasons for that, but I assume many of them are related to perceived stigma or, or actual stigma. So what I have learned is it is so empowering to tell a patient, to tell a family member, to tell their friends, I'm going to give this to you. You may need it for your friend. You may need it for any one of our community members, but I'm going to give you this medication that you can use to save a life. And people can relate to that. I, re I actually read something just a couple of days ago that said 4% of prescriptions are actually picked up at the pharmacy. 4% of prescriptions for naloxone. We just can't have that. So I know a lot of people feel kind of, oh yeah, I'm doing my part. I'm sending a prescription. Just realize a, just a minuscule number of those actually get filled. It's better to put it in their hands. And then you also get to have that conversation. Put it in your purse. Keep it in your car. I tell them um, about a time driving back from... Um, something with my daughter and literally there was someone slumped over on the side of the road doing the u-turn grabbing the narcan like you just need to normalize this and i think that's the way that we get it into the hands of our community is hand it to them literally and then help them understand that this can happen anywhere anytime and they need to be ready yeah just one clarification um you know naloxone is the generic name Narcan, I don't know what marketing they did, but they just burned it into the the memories That's of healthcare true. providers. I mean, most people still call it Narcan. Oh, totally. And I'm there, one of them. There's some, yeah, me too. You know, there's <laughs> Cloxado and there's Evzio. There's all these other brands. For the most part here in Central Coast of California, we're using nasal naloxone in the community yep. with the brand name is nasal Narcan. So both of us will slip up here and there and call it naloxone or Narcan. But uh, just to clarify, um, we've had a lot of support here in California from the state and actually paying to give the boxes of nasal Narcan into the community. And we'll talk about community distributions in just a little bit. Yep. One thing I wanted to share that I've done, and I love this, I ask my patient who has opioid use disorder, you want some Narcan? No, no. What if you could save a friend? Hey doc, maybe you're right. So I think what I tend to do is I tend to displace the need for Narcan. You would never need Narcan, but gosh, I mean, we get overdoses the safe way. And gosh, mm -hmm. I mean, what, what if a friend of yours who's using, I tend to find that the offer of, could you be a community member and just respond? People really respond well to that. So when I'm, even when I'm giving people boxes of naloxone, unless I displace the need from them to someone else, I find that I get resistance. I like that. I like that a lot. And that goes back to normalizing. Totally. Talking about overdoses from Safeway and talking about overdoses behind the library. And, and gas stations. We can yeah. do this all day. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Okay, so when you have a patient who you know is very high risk for having an opioid overdose, what do you think is the best way to make sure naloxone is where it needs to be when an overdose happens? Do you give it to parents, significant others? Do you put it in their closet? What's your approach? Again, it's with normalization and getting it to anyone who will take it, <laughs> essentially. You know, we try to get it throughout the community, but specifically in, in our region, basically, if you have gotten a substance off the street, it's going to have fentanyl in it. Or something worse. Correct. That's true. Um, but if you're using cannabis off the street, we have had cases where those have have had significant amount of fentanyl in them and have unfortunately resulted in overdoses. Our cocaine in our community 
absolutely. If you're using cocaine in my community, just assume it's fentanyl and you're at very high risk for overdose. Sometimes without any cocaine, it's just fentanyl. Yeah. Do the talk screens. There's no cocaine, only (laughs) fentanyl. So, you know, the meth in my community, I, I often speak about how frustrated my patients are who are preferring to use methamphetamine or that's their drug of choice. They don't get that choice. If you use meth in my community, you're in addition using fentanyl. So I think it needs to be everywhere. And that's really something I try to help my patients, their family members, their friends. I help them understand. So I talk about the cannabis. I talk about the cocaine. I talk about the meth and let them know that any exposure could potentially be fatal from a dose of fentanyl. So I need paper and I, I kind of enlist them and empower them that you could save someone's life, whether it's your friend or anybody else, but because of what's on our street right now and what's in our community, I need to give this to you so you can save someone's life. Yeah, I think for me, I just think who's likely to be the most responsible adult? Is it the spouse? Is it the parent? Is it the brother? Is it the roommate? Is it the best friend on the street? So I think that I think that's where I target. Go ahead. And then give it to all of them. Yes. Like every one of those people <laughs> needs it. <laughs> totally. Because then again, they might save someone else on the street too. Well, and totally, I actually have been known to say, you know, if you are around humans or pets that you really like, you need to have Narcan. I mean, just this has got to be everywhere. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So now uh, you and I have done too many naloxone trainings for our community in our community to count. As you reflect back on the various trainings that we've done, what do you think has been the most effective way to train community members on how to use naloxone and to get naloxone into the hands of community members? So there's two parts to this. One is how do you make it easy for people to stop by after work, grab some Narcan, learn how to use it, and then move about their day. So structurally, the I believe what was one of the most effective ways we did it is we rented out a center in our community and we set up in English a six minute video playing on loop of how to give naloxone. And we did the same thing in Spanish in another room. And we had flyers and information and pamphlets in each respective language in each respective room. And people would walk in and somebody would direct them, hey, just take a minute, watch the six minute video. You can watch it a couple times if you need to, and then jump over there, talk to that lady, who was me, and she'll get you some Narcan. And they did. People walked in, they watched the video once or twice, they'd come over and I would ask them personally, I spoke with every person that came through my line, do you have any questions? And some people were like, nope, thanks doc, and they were gone. And other people were, yeah, I have some questions. And what was crazy is there at times was a, a line. It was like a receiving line. I remember a wedding. that. You looked like yeah. you were getting married. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Total receiving line. It was like line. 50 people waiting to talk to you. <laughs> and they were patient and they were kind and they were very respectful of this is, this is education I need and want. And it was a really, really powerful powerful um, scene that we had there. So that that was crazy cool. In two hours, we trained over 300 people in two languages, and we were able to make a big impact on the community. Second part is how you do the training. So essentially, every time I train on Narcan, either myself or Dr. Grover or one of my partners gets Narcan. I have had, oh my gosh, if I say 100, it's probably an underestimate doses of Narcan in in the last 10 years of training. And literally you show people, you give it, and then you literally take the the plastic device and you kind of poke it on your hand, showing them there's no needle, nothing to get harmed with. And the eyes in the audience, when you do that, they're just, oh my gosh, and she didn't explode. 
or fall over dead or all these things that they're afraid of. And so they get to see in real time a live human getting Narcan and having no side effects, no issues. And after I do these presentations, so many people will come up and like, you gave yourself Narcan. Uh, yeah, I do it all the time. And just normalizing again that this isn't something scary. It isn't something dangerous. You know, there aren't fireworks or spiders that climb out. It's super easy and it's safe. And I think that's the, the most important thing that I, I do in my trainings. Yeah, I um, I usually laugh afterwards and tell people that it's a little bit bitter. I've probably given myself or you've given me, oh I don't even know gosh. how many doses of naloxone. Um, you know, to our audience, we've been doing, uh, like we said, countless naloxone trainings. Uh, if you want to email me, addictionemac at fastmail.com. I can get you the video that we've recorded. Um, I can also get you our slide decks. We're happy to share. Oh, yeah. Gosh, we've trained thousands, thousands of people yeah. on how to use naloxone. A couple other points that kind of I would make. I think the first thing I usually do is whenever I go to a naloxone training, I bring an expired box with me. Oh, yeah. And I like it to be sealed. And usually what I'll do is I'll go through my slides. We'll talk about when to give it, call 911. We go over the expiration date. We let people know that after the expiration date, the naloxone is still good. It loses about 5% potency for every year after the expiration date. What if it's 120 degrees and my naloxone gets exposed? We just kind of go over the nuts and bolts. And then I walk them through the box. I literally like, almost above my head, I open it. I show them the two blister packs. Again, we use the nasal can here in the central uh, California area that we're working in. And then I open one of the little blister packs and I show them, this is what it looks like. I press the syringe and then the spray goes into the air. And then I explain to them, that's how this works. It coats the inside of the nose. You don't have to be breathing. It can be in any position that you want or, or need, I should say. And that I think helps people understand how the thing, how the device works. And then I usually give myself a dose as well, or I ask for a volunteer. Yep. But yeah, that I think unpacking the box has been really helpful for me. I think there's one other thing on that is if someone, and, and I do this as a demonstration, you know, if, if Casey and I are presenting together, I'll kind of shake him. And if, and I tell the audience, if he wakes up and is like, dude, come on, get off me. That's not a time for Narcan. You are not giving Narcan to someone who is high. And that was in air quotes. If they are unresponsive, and poorly breathing, and you are considering they are probably or possibly dead. You're giving Narcan. And so literally kind of allowing people to realize that difference between, oh, you know, he's he's nodding off, but he's responding to me versus, oh my goodness, I'm afraid he's dead or dying. That's when you're giving 911. And it takes some of the fear away as well because otherwise you just watch someone die. Just to clarify, I said that's when you're giving 911. That's when you're calling 911 and giving the lock zone. Thank you. Yeah, Very you're good. welcome. I was paying Appreciate attention, it. see? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thinking back on your career, what clinical case involving the lock zone stands out to you the most and why? Uh, so it was in 2019, and we were starting to see something weird in my community. People were having overdoses, and it didn't make sense. And I'll never forget this young man. He came in fr- in an overdose situation. He'd gotten naloxone in the field. And we were talking. He's like, no, 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 dude, it was just a Percocet. I was like, okay, all right. And then half hour later, the nurse calls me and she's like, Some- he's not responding. He's not responding. So we gave him more Narcan. And he responded and he answered the same 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 information he provided to me was, I just, dude, it was just a Percocet. I don't even understand. 
And that happened three more times. We finally put him on a Narcan drip and admitted him to the ICU. And that's when we started piecing together that fentanyl had come to our community. And the reason that's so profound to me is I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why he was continuing to overdose. It wasn't making sense. And as an ER doc, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And I mean, obviously, I think we all know where fentanyl has taken us since then. So that case really stands out. Yeah, I'm going to share one from my residency. So I was a second year resident in the pediatric emergency department, and we get a call that there's an opioid overdose coming in on Opana. If you remember, that was hydromorphone. It was briefly on the scene. And 2011, that was, that was a bad time with prescription mm. opiates in America. And so in any case, I'm a second year resident. I was the senior resident in the PDD. And they're like, Grover, you're on it. I was like, I got it. And I'll never forget them, the paramedics wheeling him into our... Uh, a kind of resuscitation bay and him yelling, please don't Narcan me, please don't Narcan me. And I remember the the anger rising in my, my gut of like, oh, we're going to totally Narcan you. You deserve it. But I, of course, clinically was like, well, sir, we're just really worried about your breathing. We'll just give you a little bit of naloxone, see how it goes. But I was taught, punish these people, make mm-hmm. them suffer. I'm embarrassed. I mean, I have goosebumps right now just thinking about the raw emotion and just I, I was hurting him. I mean, I've, I've, I've read so many recovery novels mm-hmm. and people talk about back in the 90s, if you went into an ER, they'd push naloxone just to punish you like you deserve it. So let's just take a minute and be grateful that we've learned yeah. and things have changed. And the man was yelling at me. He clearly did not need naloxone. Right. And yet my training was really to punish people and make them withdraw so they would know how bad their decisions were and that would fix them. I mean, this goes back to my saying of all these years, why do patients with addiction not get better? We judge them, we don't offer them treatment and it's impossible to get treatment, right? One in seven Americans will develop a substance use disorder yet less than one in 10 has access to treatment. This is what you and I are trying to do. Let's make treatment for addiction as friendly as treatment for asthma or diabetes. Let's make it as as accessible. Oh, sorry, a bit of a rant here, but I just, I'll never forget that young man and how my training was to harm him. It just goes to the deep, deep stigma that's, mm-hmm. that's in healthcare against patients with addiction. It is truly systemic, systemic stigma. Okay, so looking ahead to upcoming projects, can you talk about your work getting buprenorphine into the pre-hospital setting here in the central coast of California? That was a softball. I just saw you smile. I can't help it. This project just absolutely is is so incredible and so rewarding. So um, Monterey County, San Benito County, and Santa Cruz County, we partnered. And we decided that we were going to bring EMS buprenorphine to the Central Coast region as a team. And so we brought together some amazing talent from our health department, some amazing talent from the other health departments, and we brought in our EMS agency and we just, we really pulled it together of what can we do and how to get this off the ground. And fortunately, all seven of the hospitals in our region are participating with the California Bridge to Treatment Project and we have substance use navigators in all seven hospitals. So it, it, was, it was a softball. It was really neat that we had such amazing people coming together to do this work. So prior If someone were in an acute withdrawal situation, either what I call natural withdrawal from not using opiates, 
or if it was induced withdrawal from getting naloxone. Precipitated withdrawal. Yeah. What we would do is we would transport them potentially to the hospital and great, cool. That's, that's great. They get to medical care. But now what we do in that exact same situation is we give them buprenorphine. We start them on treatment. We make them feel better. We let them know we care about them. Our paramedics have that empowered situation where they can treat the patient with care, without stigma. They let them know they're going to connect them to further treatment and resources. And then we can have that opportunity to stop the cycle, right? So many of our patients have left EMS or the hospital in that acute withdrawals um, situation because they need to go use to not be sick. On the flip side, we're actually starting the treatment right there in that moment. And one of the last cases that I helped one of our medics with um, in this scenario, I could hear the patient in the background and he was screaming. He was uncomfortable. My medic, she was amazing. She was calming him down. She was talking to me. She was doing that juggling act they do so beautifully. And she called me after they got him to the hospital and she said, you know, within about 10 minutes, he was thankful, he was quiet, they were able to converse with him, and he told her how much better he was feeling and he thanked her. That changed for her, her experience in taking care of of people with opiate use disorder, and it reminded me why this project is so important and how we're going to get so many more patients connected into care and truly break the cycle of overdose hospital use overdose hospital use yeah a couple of thoughts on that i think the first thing is a little shout out to episode 30 on this podcast which was on buprenorphine after naloxone rescue in that episode i was kind of talking about like hey there's some communities doing this so (laughs) we're one of them now shoot we decided we were going to do it the other thing i think you know we had we had one er doc in our community who was like this is stupid why it's only a 10 minute ride to the hospital why give them buprenorphine i mean what if you precipitate withdrawal more I mean, in our, in our community, depending on where you overdose, it might be an hour transport time. So, I mean, you can imagine being an opiate withdrawal mm. for an hour. I mean, goodness. Jump so, on the back of rig. And just to clarify, really this EMS buprenorphine project is for withdrawal from not using opioids um, and for withdrawal after an naloxone rescue. So we obviously have some exclusions. And if someone's on methadone, that might make things more complicated. We're not giving buprenorphine to everyone in the pre-hospital setting. There's a very specific Correct. algorithm. I'm totally embarrassed. I handled one of these the other day and didn't know the protocol. Now I do. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really cool. There's not a lot of these calls, but each one gets followed up. And there's a lot of impact being made. Yeah, it's it's an incredible project that I am just over the moon excited about that we're able to do. Yeah. So before we wrap up, anything else on naloxone that you wanted to add? So we tease a lot that, and this sounds so weird to say, and I know this audience will understand, but you kind of have gotten to a point of missing heroin because it was something you somewhat knew what was going on with your patients. You, you had an idea of dosing and you had an idea of how you could start buprenorphine easily, safely. You know, it. those, those were the days, so or, to speak. Or prescription opioids. Oh, my goodness. You're, on, you're how, using how many smokes. Norco a day? Great. How many milligrams is that? Yeah. Yeah, I miss those days. It, it, was, a, it was a different world. And then we, back as I said, in 2019, we started dealing with fentanyl and we've learned so much over the last four years of dealing with fentanyl and, and we're getting a handle on it. And granted, it's super nuanced, but we're, we're getting there. What scares me is what's next. And in our community, 
What's next are the novel benzodiazepines. We're seeing carfentanil. We are seeing atizolam. We are seeing xylazine. Bromazolam. I mean, it's, it's... We're worried about isotinidazine. Totally. It's just... It's anybody's guess. And my patients, literally, that I'm taking care of in the street clinic specifically, will ask me, can, can you test me? I don't know what's in my dope. And the truth is they don't. They have no idea. And so I, I talk very openly and honestly with my patients about that, that I have no idea what's in your body. Couldn't tell you. So we try to partner with them and talk with them through it. But the one thing that I would stick with as far as it goes... Um, in this episode about naloxone is that's the fire extinguisher we do have. So I don't have a, a magic antidote for bromazolam or atizolam or, or xylazine. Yeah. I don't. But fortunately, and it's weird to say that, and you can hear the hesitation in my voice, that the majority of these are mixed with an opioid such as fentanyl, parafluorofentanyl, carfentanil or something. So you still have a fire extinguisher that is likely to work. It may not reverse the entire overdose. That's why that 911 thing was so exciting and so important in the beginning. You still have to call for help because you can reverse the fentanyl or other opiates, but everything else that may be in their system, you don't have anything to treat them with. So yes, Narcan is one, it's that hammer and nail analogy. You know, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, this is the hammer we have. And fortunately, most of our scenarios have nails, at least as part of the problem. So it's almost like don't be nihilistic about naloxone. Just exactly. because the drug supply is tainted, you could still save a life. You absolutely can. And don't miss that opportunity. You know, because if someone dies, they never get a chance to recover. If you look at the artwork, that's my podcast. That's a painting made by a friend of mine named Paul. And we lost him in 2019. Yep. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we did talk about, you know, why do we like recovery? It's giving people their lives back. When you die of an overdose, you never get that chance for recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say, Dr. Close, you killed it. I know you were a little bit nervous about this. We walked through a couple of the questions this morning. Absolutely fantastic interview. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening. We are so grateful that Dr. Close could join us. Please consider sharing this podcast with a colleague. To all of you providing care for patients with substance use disorders, thank you for what you do. As we all know, treating substance use disorders saves lives.